I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase your dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man. This is Iron Mike Stedman, and you're listening to Confessions of a Native Son, a black veteran's perspectives on race, culture, and business. When I was a young plea boxer at the Naval Academy, I dreamed of being a member of the illustrious Navy boxing team. After shedding countless blood, sweat, and tears inside the ring during my first semester of college, I eventually earned that coveted spot. Once I joined the team, I soon raised my ambitions to becoming a national champion one day. And at the time, there was only one member of the team who held that title, Anton Aku. Quiet and confident, Anton was one of the many role models I had at the Naval Academy. And as a freshman, I didn't really know him until I joined the team. Prior to that, he was a mystery to me, as everyone whispered his name as soon as he walked into the gym. He won a national championship his freshman year of college, which put him into a league of his own. Once I joined the team, Anton was hard on me. But after a while, we became brothers, along with all the other members of the six-minute fraternity, in reference to those of us who know what it's like to compete for three two-minute rounds as competitive amateur boxers. Anton is a Hawaiian native and one of the first I ever met in person. And on team trips, he introduced me to Hawaiian culture, which was foreign to me at the time. Like many of my other teammates, Anton was there as I dealt with my mom's stroke and won my first two national championships, which I'll always remember. Outside of the ring, No one knew much about Anton's personal life because he never really spoke about it. We heard mentions that he was adopted, but never really pressed to learn more. Prior to graduating the Naval Academy, Anton's life goal was to become a Navy SEAL, which he was denied on multiple occasions. Upon entering the fleet, he was denied again and again before he took fate into his own hands and flew to Washington, D.C. to submit his SEAL paperwork in person. Fortune favors the bold, and that bold act solidified his name in the SEAL selection community. He would go on to earn that coveted title of United States Navy SEAL and serve as an officer for many years before making the difficult decision to leave active duty to pursue his own entrepreneurial and personal ambitions. On this episode of Confessions of a Native Son, Anton opens up about his difficult childhood the abuse he suffered as a child in multiple foster homes, and how he managed to persevere despite it all to attend, graduate from the Naval Academy, become a Navy SEAL, and achieve his own version of the American dream. Episodes such as these share insight into the human experience and what it means to be an American and how to rise above one's circumstances. Before you hear from Anton and I, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge our sponsors for this episode of Confessions of a Native Son. Our sponsors include Ironbound Boxing, a nonprofit based in Newark, New Jersey, that provides free amateur boxing training, entrepreneur education, and employment opportunities to Newark youth and young adults. To support the call, cause, visit our website, ironboundboxing.org, to make a donation today. I'd also like to acknowledge Dope Coffee, a lifestyle brand that pairs urban black culture with innovative product offerings in the coffee industry. 
We're not a coffee brand for black people. We're a coffee brand that seeks to elevate black culture through a lifestyle of premium coffee and candid conversation. Place your orders today at www.realdope.coffee. As always, I appreciate you for sharing your time with me, and I hope you enjoy today's show. Go back to the hood and teach them youngsters to do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. And circle back to your hood and teach them youngsters to do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. I'm a free black man. One of the things I love about having a podcast is it allows me to go back and revisit people from my past who've been such a major influence in my life. But it's like, because of life and time, we don't always get to connect. And uh, I've just been kind of going down like memory lane lately. And I'm super excited today because I got my brother from another mother, Mr. Anton Aku. What's going on, Anton? Mike, what's going on, buddy? Um, Thank you for having me. I appreciate your time. I've been looking forward to this for quite a few weeks now. And I'm excited to be here. So my name is Anton Aku, born and raised on the island of Oahu in Hawaii. Went to the Naval Academy and I boxed with Iron Mike Stedman. I was a light welterweight, 139 pounds. Uh, He and I were both national champs, brigade champs, regional champs together. So we spent a lot of blood, sweat and tears together in the gym, competitions nationals brigades you know so iron mike and i have known each other for a long time i graduated in 2009 i joined the navy commissioned i went to a ship for two years not what i wanted to do i always wanted to be a navy seal and uh, after two years on a ship i lateral transferred i went to buds sqt graduated with my original class I uh, went over to SEAL Team 7, did three deployments out of there, all to the Middle East, and came out to the East Coast in 2018. I went to Green Team, a development group, didn't make it, uh, had a freak accident, broke my foot, and was med dropped. Went over to SEAL Team 2, finished a platoon or a troop commander, and then uh, decided to look at exit options to get out of the military. So it was a tough transition. My first confession is I didn't really want to get out of the Navy. I was comfortable, you know, you got a great job, great career, great people, um, great atmosphere. I love being a Navy SEAL, um, tip of the spear unconventional warfare you're always doing some pretty cool stuff you read into some pretty cool programs um, and basically feel like a cowboy every day it's awesome it's good life but i knew my operational time was over and i wanted to get out but i i didn't want to get out and it made me uncomfortable to think that I had to now do something different where the Navy, it's just the military. It's very simple. Um, you get a steady paycheck, full health care, you know, 
life was good. But as I started thinking about what I wanted to do, I thought about MBA programs. All my friends had gone, Leanne, all my buddies at the teams, they went to Harvard, Wharton, Stanford, you know, you name it, they went. Um, I just knew school wasn't for me. A, a couple of my friends I talked to who, who got their MBA basically said, you don't need an MBA to start a business. And so that's the route I went. I just started talking to all my entrepreneur friends. How did you start your business? And Mike was one of them. He started Fighting Mojo and now Ironbound. Man, a lot to unpack there. I, he jumped and gave his confession without me even having to ask. Um, but no, nah, man, that's good. And I can understand, you know, I probably, I think I have a lot of military viewers. And so a lot of people can relate to that. And, you know, I could poke fun. At, I do poke fun at the Navy. It seems like life in the Navy is easy, right? As long as you don't kill any, kill anybody, you just kind of stay in, get your paycheck coming. But you're right in the sense of like, damn, is there more, you know? And I know a lot of people, especially us as veterans, right? Like, Guys like us, we spend our entire life basically preparing for the military, get into the Naval Academy. Then you're at the Naval Academy. Then you graduate and you're in the military. And then you just start to get older. And it's just kind of like, well, what's next? What's the next move? Um, and I know when I was like, I got out after five years, you know, I still felt this pressure of like, you know, if you don't get out now, you know, then you're going to, it's going to go 10 years. You're going to go this year. And it's going to just get more and more difficult to get out. And you see people that they tend to stay in the military and the more that the longer they stay in, the more nervous they get about like making that transition. So kudos to you for stepping out after how many years? I did 12 years. I was already over the hump. Um, I tried to get out in 2018. Navy wouldn't let me. They, they wanted me to go to SEAL Team 2 to do Troop Commander. And I knew that was gonna push me over the hump, but I thought about my teammates there they needed me and I'm not going to turn my back when my boys need some help. So I did, went over in 2018, finished a troop commander. And it's right about 11 years when I finished that, continued one more year just to start my transition out. So 12 years. So one thing that we didn't even get to talk about yet was, and I'll tell you here, uh, I probably don't know if I've ever told you this before, but a couple things, right? Before I ever stepped foot inside a boxing ring, before I knew what boxing would play in my life, my superhero was Anton Aku, you know? And it's weird about to think about that, that those times when you're so like, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, when you're just soaking up everything, you know, you're still yeah. like wet behind the ears. You don't know a lot. And, you know, for me to come to a place like the Naval Academy, I'm still getting my, my, feet, under my, my feet underneath me and just trying to figure it out. And I heard whispers of you, right? Because I started boxing during plebe summer. But yeah. I was like, who's Anku? They're like, he's a Hawaiian guy. I'm like, who is that? You know? <laughs> and, you know, back in the day, man, like, yo, the club boxing team guys, they were like, I mean, <laughs> they were like the elite, right? Superstars. They were superstars. I mean, you didn't know what you were doing. You know, we're all just trying to figure it out. But there are these, like, club guys that are traveling around. And of the club guys, like, very few will be national champions. And then here was Antone, right? So you just kind of like had this whisper about you. You know what I'm saying? And then once I made the club team and I got the box, and I got to be around you, you know, 
I was like, dude, I really looked up to you, man. You know, like, because, you know, club boxers, let's be honest, a lot of these, I tell people, I won three national championships, not boxing a bunch of midshipmen. You know, let's be honest, like midshipmen sometimes are not the best, right? But then you go in to see guys like you, your technique was on point, everything was on point. So I knew you had some experience from somewhere. And then when I used to see you step up to the plate, when we go inside these hood gyms in like Baltimore or DC, straight bangers, right? Brooklyn. Crushing people. Brooklyn. That was a good one. You know, Brooklyn. And it's like, you just had this swag about you, the way you box. And it was crazy after you graduated and you left to kind of step into those kind of roles. You know what I mean? Where people are coming in and then they're now looking at you. But like you guys, I, I, I don't know what it is, man. I've always looked up to you. Vic Cologne, Miko, Mikoto Yoshida. I think it was just this time in my life when I was going through all the stuff with my mom and everything that like, I don't know, man, like you guys have always been people I've looked up to, right? Like I still call Yoshi my team captain or, you know, Vic. Yeah. It's the brotherhood, man. It really is. You know, we took care of each other. Um, spent a lot of time together in the gym, on travel. Coach McNally, Coach Searing. You know, so we were there for each other, not it, just in the gym, but for life. It's crazy, too, because uh, after Antone became high speed, Mr. Navy SEAL, like we, you go years without seeing each other, right? Years. Yeah. You're talking like upwards, sometimes 10. Now, I've seen Antone over the years, but maybe it's been like three to five. Like it's been spread out, right? So I'm at the Brigade Boxing Championships, right? And, you know, you go years without seeing each other. Right. Like sometimes it can spread out to be like five years, upwards, 10 years. But I've seen Antone over the years. Right. But I'm at the Brigade Boxing Championship and I'm thinking I'm there with one of my kids or something. And this guy comes up to me and starts asking me about the boxing ring and he looks Mexican. Right. So I'm like, who the heck is this guy? He's got a baseball cap on. And I was like, oh, shit, it's Antone. You know, and it's like, what's up, man? And we might have only got to chop it up for like 10 minutes. Yeah. You know, maybe we at the after hours and we're chopping up for maybe like, but there's just so much life to catch up on, you know? And it's weird because it's like, as I get older, right? And you have girlfriends, you have new friends come in your life. And then you start mentioning people and they're like, I never seen you talk about this person. Before. I'm like, yo, that's my boy. You don't understand. You know what I'm saying? Like, I remember mm -hmm. everything from, you know, you guys taking me to the Asian market, cooking dumplings in your room. Didn't know anything <laughs> about that. I remember me and Jake Tenorio. You know what I'm saying? I remember oh, yeah. that. I remember you working the corner of Pentecostal Payout when he had his first fight and was spinning out. So it's like you have all these memories with each other, but it's so hard to kind of like let our new relationships, whether they're girlfriends or spouses, you know, how do you catch everybody up on like who these people are in your life and like how influential they were? Mm hmm. So, you know, one of my confessions is, to, and I've, I've, I just said this to Anton recently, but like my confession is like, I'm extremely proud of Anton. And here's why, because he wanted to be a Navy SEAL. And the first time I met him, he made it clear that like he wanted to be a Navy SEAL. And he did the SEAL screener, which is basically this qualifying event at Navy for people to be able to go to SEAL training. And uh, he didn't get it. And I think that's an important thing just as I kind of think about life, right? Like life doesn't always work out like we plan. And, you know, for some people, it seems like there's a golden road 
you know, get into the Naval Academy, you know, get your number one choice, go do this, go do that, get to your top business school, get your job, right? But that's like a very small percentage of human beings, right? Mm -hmm. Most of us have to deal with life, rejection, failure, all that kind of stuff. And Antone didn't get SEALs. And you still had to come back and like, <laughs> you still had to come back and box, right? You still had to come oh, back yeah. and, you know, run, a team. run the team as our captain. Then you had to go into the Navy and the surface warfare. And let's be honest, nobody wants to be a surface warfare officer. And if, <laughs> if y'all are listening and I'm offending you, I apologize. But like, I just couldn't imagine having to eat that for those years. But yeah. I go through the infantry it's officer, tough. I go through infantry officer course. I'm getting beat up in the winter. It's terrible, right? Freezing, getting beat up by instructors. And when I graduated the infantry officer course, I was like, I want to go to Hawaii. I hit up Anton because I knew he was stationed there. And I was like, hey, man, I want to come to Hawaii. He's like, bro, you can crash with me. Boom. That's I graduated right. and I went and I spent like three weeks in Hawaii, y'all, bumming it around. And the thing about the confession was I went to work out with Anton with this like SEAL guy on like a Saturday morning. Right. So he oh, was, he was still out here. You took me on some jungle run, still out here, still getting it. And then you came into your being, you know, you call me iron Mike. You're like Anton, the Navy seal, you know, but I feel like I got to witness before that, man. And so like, I'm just super proud of you because I don't know, man, it's just, you, you put in so much time, effort, and you became who you knew you already were. It just took other people to figure it out. And so it was awesome. I have another confession. Yeah. Go ahead. It took me three attempts to finally get accepted to go to Bud's. First, the first time was out of the academy, right? I applied. Mm -hmm. I went through the SEAL screener. I didn't get selected. So I went to the ship. After a year on the ship, I reapplied. I did not get it. And I'm like, what is going on? Why? After two attempts, I didn't get it. So I called a guy in Washington, D.C., Commander Evenson was his name. And he told me exactly what I needed to do to get selected. I needed letters of recommendations from high-ranking SEALs. Um, my physical scores were good. He said, you're good there. He said, you need more letters. You we need to show that other people, other SEALs in the community can vouch for you. I had no connections. So I just started finding any SEAL I could. And this was in uh, Hawaii. So I went over to SEAL Delivery Vehicle Team 1 in Pearl Harbor. and just walked onto the quarter deck and I said, can I talk to the CEO or XO? And... It took about four to five weeks to build up their confidence. And in order to do that, I just had to do a lot of workouts with them. So runs, um, PTs, um, PRTs, every week I would do something with the XO. As he gained more confidence that I was serious about applying for BUDS, he gave me an interview with the CO, Commander Chad um, Muse, and USE, Commander Chad Muse. So Chad was a tough one. It was a good interview, but ultimately I, I want his recommendation. 
I found a Navy SEAL 06 captain in Pearl Harbor. Um, same deal. Workouts on Saturday, runs, swims, workouts. All they were doing was testing how serious I was and seeing how physically fit I was. Um, over another five to six weeks, I was able to earn that captain's letter of recommendation. And I still talk to him today, Captain Dennis Hansen. Uh, he's long retired now, but um, after I got those two letters of recommendation, I packaged everything up. So letters of recommendation, seal uh, fitness tests. Um, I had to do a, a dive chamber test just to make sure they knew I was qualified to dive. And um, a letter from my ship CEO saying, yes, we'll allow Antone to lateral transfer. I took all of that. And instead of mailing it in, I flew to Washington, D.C. Flew there on my own dime, on my own leave, and I hand-delivered that application uh, package for BUDS. And the guy looked at me, Commander Darren Evenson, same guy who said, this is what you need to do to get in. And I hand-delivered it to him. And he said, no one's ever done that. And I said, this is how bad I want to go to BUDS. That was my third package go to buds and that was august 2011 september 2011 i found out i got picked up for buds so i went to buds november of that year um, classed up with buds class 295 graduated with 295 straight into sqt 296 class 296 graduated with class 296 one and done for both and, um, yeah, started my SEAL career after that. So for our listeners, BUD stands for Basic Underwater Demolition School. It's one of the hardest schools in the entire U.S. military. Um, so when he says one and done, right, there are people that do that thing two, three times. Yeah. Um, SQT, what does that stand for? SEAL Qualification Training. So this is nine, like months. nine months after BUDS. And then after that, you get put into one of our one of the SEALs team teams and you go do your thing what that whole experience going back to you becoming a seal flying all the way out to dc handing that thing in handing that package in what lesson did you learn from that experience never give up yeah think about i could have given up the first time i didn't get picked up it's been like it wasn't meant to be move on, do something different. You know, I, I knew deep down if I was going to stay in the Navy, the only thing I would be happy with is being a SEAL, no matter what it took. And after that second time, I, I didn't get picked up. I called the guy and said, how do I get it picked up? What do I need to do? You know, that's what he told me. So that entire time you were training, and doing your thing, you were just kind of doing it in a silo? Correct. Yeah, I was doing my ship job, which was an electrical engineering officer. And 
working out, training, staying fit, swimming, running, um, getting as strong as I can. And think about it. Candidates who show up to BUDS, they're physically capable. You cannot train your mind, though. So when you get there, that's when you really know, am I going to make it? When I, there was no doubt. When I got there, I saw the buds grinder, I saw the bell, I saw the students, I saw the beach, the boats, the paddles, the helmets. I said, this is it. I cannot wait to start. I was so excited. And I wasn't the fastest. I wasn't the strongest. There was a professional triathlete in my buds class. He was strong. He was fast. He was a good swimmer quit in five days, couldn't handle the water, couldn't handle the cold. And I never, never thought about it. Never thought about quitting. You know, I'm sitting there shoulder to shoulder with my brothers. We're all freezing cold. And honestly, the only thing we think about was what's for lunch or what song should we sing so we can take our mind off of the pain? And we'd sing, not, not, not even kidding. We'd just sing a song. Um, so a couple of lessons learned from there is get comfortable with the uncomfortable and just embrace it because it's going to suck. Life is going to suck. Being denied sucks. But get comfortable with that because denial happens every turn of your life. You can either face it, you can either ignore it, you can run away with it or run away from it. But I chose to face it every single time, all the way up until I got out. You know, it's funny, but uh, here in Newark, we have a saying called taking L's, right? But I bet you're yep. probably way stronger than most because you took those L's early on, you know? And sometimes people yeah. delay it because like you say, they sit in that comfortability, right? Like I'm talking about this now with like being an entrepreneur and what I'm doing with Ironbound and everything, right? Like not being afraid to operate at the edge of your own competency, you know, mm -hmm. stuff that really pushes you and challenge you. But one of the things I, I've, I've kind of noticed, especially when you go to a school like the Naval Academy, um, you know, a lot of people that tend to go there tend to be winners, right? They're like good in school, they got good grades, oh, yeah. whatever. And the first time they really start taking L's, you know, is at a place like the Academy and some break, right? <laughs> like they get that B in class instead of A's. And I was, I was always like a C student, so I'm good, you know, <laughs> but you see people just like, you know, they're breaking left and right. And so I can only imagine for you being so young, you know, still in your early twenties to take an L like that. And that's a big L to take. And that, you know, you're talking about five years, seven year process, whatever, of trying mm -hmm. to become a Navy SEAL and telling you no, you know, and still having to live your rest of your life. I think that only made you stronger. Yeah. But there was another lesson I wanted, I kind of saw your story a little different too of, and I'm learning this now myself because as an entrepreneur, especially for a nonprofit, I'm always applying to grants. I'm always applying to different stuff. And more often than not, we don't get anything. Mm -hmm. And my friend, uh, Philip Jones, Harvard MBA graduate, right? He's like, bro, do you know anybody on these boards? Have you like talked to them ahead of time? You know, because we think that the way to get things done is, you know, you apply or whatever, but it's really more like what you said, 
you know, this thing in life of like, what relationships do you have? You know, mm-hmm. what auctioneers do you have? What champions do you have? So when that application comes across the table, you know, people see it and they're like, I vouch for him versus just being in a silo. And yeah. kudos to you for like having the balls to go and hand that sucker in or walk on that pitch or walk on that deck and say, I want to meet with someone because again, like I'm, I'm 34 now and I'm still figuring this stuff out, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I, dude, I think the sky is the limit for you with a lot of those yeah. lessons you learn, you know, outside of the military. Now, one of the things I want to do is I want to take it back a little bit. Talk to us about your upbringing in Hawaii, because I've never really talked to you a lot about it. And I know, um, You've kind of mentioned it before, but if I'm not mistaken, did you come from adopted parents? More or less. I, I'm the youngest of five. I've got three sisters and one brother. We're all, um, we're not very close, actually. My oldest sister passed away in 2001. She was murdered. Um, so I, I really don't remember her too much. She was 11 years older than me. Um, then comes my brother, my two sisters, and then me. We grew up with our parents who were abusive, alcoholics, drug addicts, and it physically would hit me, my brother, my sisters. So, but I was about the age of two. Um, we were taken away from Child Protective Service and we went off to pretty much separate foster homes. And from the age of two to 18, I grew up in at least seven or eight foster homes, two homeless shelters, and one emergency shelter. So about nine or 10 times I moved around different homes, um, different families. It was always embarrassing, you know, when I go to school and I see people with their parents, I see kids with their parents and no one there for me, really. Just my siblings. But even then, my siblings and I went to separate schools because at times in my growing up, we were separated um, for all sorts of reasons. But um, yeah, so for the most part, I grew up in foster homes, foster care, um, homeless shelters. And I don't know what really struck a light bulb in me, but freshman year of high school, I said, if I don't turn it around, if I don't do well in school, I don't know what will happen with me. I could end up like my parents who were, they were in prison or, you know, on the streets doing nothing. So I did well in high school. I played a lot of sports, did whatever I could to keep myself busy. I had a part-time job, varsity swimming, varsity track, varsity cross country, um, NJROTC, I was busy and um, the only college I applied to was the Naval Academy. Didn't apply to a single other college. 
That's because I really didn't care. I, I just wanted to join the military and, and get out of there. But as luck would have it, I got accepted to the Naval Academy Preparatory School. Took it. Left in 2004. One year there. Four years at the Academy. And, you know, my life started from there, basically. I feel like I can relate to a lot of stuff. Although I didn't grow up in the foster system, but I understand about like, sometimes you have these past experiences that you don't necessarily want to talk about, or it's like, you're very stoic about. I think that happened to me after my mom got sick. You know, I just never talked about it, but I always remember you kind of, I just remember photos on Facebook and I'm like, Anton, who is that? And you're like, Oh, that's my foster mom or something. But that was it. <laughs> that was it. Like Anton never talked about parents, never talked about any of that stuff. Um, and it's funny because I always see you as like a hard person. Like you were always very stoic, you know, you're always very stoic, right? Like what, and I think it's probably comes from that upbringing. And, you know, as we start to the Hawaiian culture, especially being in poverty, bouncing around from foster home to foster home in a system, what was that experience like for you? Scary. Um, my very first foster home, it was me, my brother, Adam, my sister, Kanani. The other two older ones were gone. I don't know what happened to them, my other two sisters. I was two, my sister was four, my brother was five. But we lived with this old widow, Dorothy Madaris. I will never forget her name. We lived there for almost five years and she was extremely abusive. She neglected us, she hit us, and um, sometimes she would starve us. It was, it was bizarre. I never understood why she volunteered to take us in and she treated us like that. But I was so young, you know, two, three, four, five, six, and then right before I hit seven, we left. And, this, and, and here's how we were able to get out of that house. She had two grandsons, Mark and Kevin. Again, I'll never forget those names either. Um, one day they were picking on me. My brother couldn't stand it, and he beat up both of them. Granny, we called her Granny, called the cops, arrested my brother, and that's me seeing my nine-year-old or 10-year-old brother in handcuffs, being hauled up by the cops. We were scared. So my sister and I came up with a plan. The next day at school, we would tell our teachers what happened, how we were being treated. And we had all the scars to prove it. My sister had scars up and down her arms, under her armpits, um, so did I. So we just went to our teacher. Told her what was happening, showed us the scars. She sent us to the counselors who called our social worker, Patrick Spencer. And I'll never forget all these names because they meant a lot my whole entire life. Patrick Spencer was there in like 45 minutes, picked us up. We never went back to that house. We went straight to another foster home on the opposite side of Oahu. Crazy. What's an emergency shelter? So 
an emergency shelter is it's it's a home um like a normal family but they don't hold kids like foster kids they can only hold them temporarily and it's a just a, a medium so that as the system is trying to find this you know this kid this juvenile um, a permanent home they have to put them somewhere so i was in i was in one emergency shelter and that was um in Eva beach the santos family they were super nice and they made an exception for me to stay there for one year which is against like the state rules it's usually only two to four maybe six months but i was a good kid and they wanted to keep me longer so the state gave me um, an exemption to stay there for about a year. So that, that's an emergency show. It's a, it's a normal family who volunteers to open their house for these kids, but not for long term. A foster home um, is different. They will open the doors. And the plan is to eventually adopt. And you can stay at a foster home for years, you know before they officially adopt you. Or they can never adopt you. They can just stay at a foster home. So I've been to a ton of foster homes um, throughout my throughout my time. The reason and I appreciate you sharing this stories with our listeners mm-hmm. and sharing it with me. You know, I don't know I didn't know any of this stuff before. But when I think about one of the most scary experiences I could think of as a child would definitely be a ward of the state. You know? It's like you oh, see it yeah. in the movies. And it's like that sense of like, you have no control. You've got no parents. You got nobody to vouch for you. And, you know, having such a traumatic childhood, how has that shaped your experience of the rest of the world? Well, it could have gone two ways. I could have given up, become a product of the system, which is generally kids who um, become you know, drug addicts, um, physically abusive to their spouse, and they blame it on the system. They blame it on other outside factors. And they're like, well, you know, I didn't have a good upbringing. So this is my excuse for theft, for shoplifting, for doing crime, you know, or for you know, blaming their anger when they hit their spouse or get into arguments. It's my past. Now, my past has a lot to do with with it or with anyone. But it can also shape you. So it built up a lot of resilience in me. And it showed me that if I want to have a better life, I should do the opposite of how I was brought up. It's hard to explain, but even when I went to high school, I don't know what the light bulb was that clicked, but it happened. I knew I needed to do well in school at a minimum and doors will open up. What about resentment? And because the reason I ask this is because like, it seems like you still have a love for Hawaii. You know, when I was there Big with time. you, oh, I love that place. You know, we were at, dude, 
One of my fondest memories, y'all, is sitting at Rum Fire in downtown Honolulu with uh, Anton and his lady friends from his high oh, school yeah. who loved him. These were like his sisters. And it was yeah. just a good time. And when I think about like happy experiences in my life, it's definitely sitting at Rum Fire watching that sunset with you all. Yeah. But how have you, and the reason I ask is because I know it'd be easy for you to have some resentment. You know, mm -hmm. like not even want to return to Hawaii because it reminds you of all the foster homes and the emergency shelter and stuff. But that doesn't appear to be the case. Quite the opposite. Whenever I go back home, I make it a point to go back to my alma mater, my high school, to talk to kids. I'll call my uh, high school counselor, Elaine Fia. She's still there. And I say, hey, Elaine, pick a time of the week where I can come talk to the kids. I'd love to share my story and talk to them about my life. I graduated from this high school. I graduated from the Naval Academy. I started my career in the Navy and it's my way of giving back. I, I never, never resented life. Um, and even my parents. So both of my parents went to prison my mom did over 20 years. My dad probably did about 10. He got let out early, but I still never saw my dad or my mom well after I left for the Naval Academy. Freshman year at the Naval Academy, I won regionals, brigades, and my first national title as a freshman. My hometown newspaper heard about it. Honolulu advertiser called me and wanted to write an article about me. So I was like, yeah, no big deal. Gave him, you know, my, 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 my uh, topics, my discussions, talked about boxing, growing up in Hawaii, graduating from James Campbell High School. And I sent them a picture. They published it in the sports edition and my uncle saw it. And that's how I started connecting back with my family that I didn't know about because I didn't grow up with them. And for 16 years of my life, I grew up in foster homes. So I connected with my dad, um, all, his, all his family, and it was awesome. You said a couple things about, you know, never regretting life. And like you said, you could have ended up like all the other people in the system. You know, I live in Newark, right? And so Newark's got its own set of issues. But mm -hmm. one of the things I'm fascinated by now is this concept of internal locus of control. You know, no matter how bad things get, always remember that you control the outcome, you know? And it, like a lot of stuff can happen to us. Racism, freaking poverty. We can find ourselves yeah. in positions. And as an entrepreneur, I'm always operating at like, <laughs> it can be a good day or bad day, whatever you, way you look at it, you know? But I've just, I can feel a sense of weakness when you lose the sense of control, you know? And it's like, once mm -hmm. you regain control, no matter how bad it is, you see a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and again, I just, you talking about that is like, and I think we're at this interesting point in society because you have the haves and you got the have nots. 
and the haves are flexing on social media, <laughs> you know, yeah. they're making YouTube videos and stuff. And so like people knew the wealth gaps in this country, but it's one thing to like really see it like every day. And people are constantly reminded of like what they don't have. Um, but there's something to be said about, like you said, no matter what, man, always having that, that locus of control, you control the outcome, right? Do not exactly. end up a product of your environment. You know, that's a cop out. Exactly. Yeah. And I've, it's, I was talking to our mutual friend, Mikoto Yoshida, about this. But, you know, in the there's a lot that's happened with George Floyd and America and all this and that. And my view on life has just kind of changed so much because I feel like the ultimate betrayal of any kind of racism or any kind of uh, experiences, sexual assault, whatever, the ultimate betrayal of yourself is to let that prevent you from having a fulfilling life, whatever that is. It's like you're giving people too much power over you. You know, this idea that like this trauma can happen so long ago and yet you're going to allow it to prevent you from, you know, loving a fulfilling life, dying mm -hmm. bitter and mad at the world. And I just don't view that as I view that as like being a traitor to yourself, <laughs> you know, but it took yeah. me time to come to that. Right. Like I'm not I, I didn't always think like this, but I've just kind of realized that you see so many people that are bitter about life and what life has done to them, you know, instead of like making the most of it. And we lost a mutual friend. I don't know if you knew Daryl Hunter, um, but you know, mm -hmm. he passed away. He was a Naval Academy class in 2008. And just seeing somebody so young passing away, it just put yeah. a lot of stuff in perspective of like, this is our life. Like this right here, this conversation, this is life, you know? Right. Now, one of the things I want to ask you about is, you know, you had this traumatic background by all experience, and now you're going into an environment like the Naval Academy, which is like very, <laughs> I don't want to call it upper class. How would you describe it? You know, this sense of like, it just feels different, right? Like you're it was trained. a culture shock. It's a culture shock, right? Like this idea that you're moving up the social ladder, you know? Yeah. And that's why a lot of veterans, I think, end up going to elite schools afterwards is because when you get into a place like the Naval Camp, you almost feel like you're successful just being there. People look at you like you've already made it, you know? And for me, right, I felt this sense of, like, I would look around at people and I would be envious because people felt so privileged. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, here I am coming from this single parent home. These kids, the parents are coming out, buying them all kind of stuff, whatever. And I just felt this kind of like, and maybe that was like early imposter syndrome. You know, that sense of like, <laughs> I don't belong here. If people find out how I really am, like, I'm not going to fit in. But I'm curious to learn about, like, how did you show up in that space, given your background? I got to say, I felt probably the same way you did. You know, I'm no parent home. I showed up by myself. No one dropped me off for Friday. Took a one-way flight by myself. Showed up checked in. Um, I wasn't scared. I wasn't sad. I was extremely happy. So excited to be there. And it was definitely a culture shock. Growing up in Hawaii, I had never been to the mainland before that. Uh, we talked different. We looked different there. We were raised different. You know, so, um, the weather's different. 365, the weather's different. It's nice, sunny. Um, but no, I mean, 
it wasn't as bad as it could have seemed, but I bet you heard the fire. It's all right. Fire engine. Um, it was good. I'll never regret that day. I'll always remember it. I love being at the Naval Academy. And, you know, I'm very, very thankful and happy that I was given the opportunity. And, you know, I, I proved everyone that I could make it. Having this conversation with you so much stuff is making sense now. Because I remember us traveling to fights and like some people would have their parents come. You always had friends there. Yeah, that's right. Uh, right. We had friends. That's yeah, right. Like your friends will fly out to be there with you, you know, and it makes sense All now. Brigades. Yeah. Every brigades. Friends came out, not family. But friends are family. That's right. You know. Be there for the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's right. And nationals, um, basically everywhere we went for a competition, I saw what friend do I have there? So when we would go to Reno, I had friends who were in Northern California. So I would prep them. Hey, I'm coming out to Reno in April. Make your way out there when I get there. <laughs> One thing I noticed too at the Naval Academy, particularly for like Polynesians and full transparency, y'all. When I was there, I was from the South. I knew black, white, and Mexican. If you were Puerto Rican, I thought you were Mexican. Right. I didn't know what the hell Anton was. Right. I was like, I don't know what he is. Right. But being around you, I got exposed to Asian culture, particularly Polynesian culture. And you guys rolled so tight. You know, y'all rolled really, really tight. Y'all were going over a sponsor's house. Y'all were having y'all's dinner. And I just remember watching from afar of like, yo, man, there's something there. You know, there's something there about how tight y'all were. Yeah. I mean, it goes for every click, group, you know, put all race aside or ethnicity or culture. It's just a group of friends. But for Polynesians, I mean, we eat the same food, right? Rice, chicken, spam, Portuguese sausage. Um, you know, we talk the same. We look the same. I mean, yeah. it's, it's all similar. It's all this human experience, man. We're all the same people, right? People sure. try to rip us apart, but I think we have more in common than we do apart. But we, we, uh, Anto and I had a mutual friend by the name of Jake Tenorio, who unfortunately yes. is no longer with us. But mm -hmm. Jake was my guy, man. And y'all showed me everything. Like the Asian marketplace, like I said, I didn't even know those things existed. You know, I would have had no <laughs> idea. But the fact that like you guys had this culture and that you shared it with other people. It wasn't like a very insular culture. I felt like mm -hmm. you were teaching, you were showing me stuff, right? Like I've always appreciated that. And uh, kudos to you again for like going into an environment like the Naval Academy and still just like making the most of it. You know what I mean? Um, given all the stuff. Appreciate that. And I'll tell yeah. you, man, uh, the night I was getting ready to fight for my first national championship, right? Yeah. You know, my mom was still... Dealing with her stuff, you know, she stroked, she was in the hospital. I felt like I had nobody to call, you know? I used to get envious about it, like, and I could have told my aunt and had my sister and them there in the audience. And and like as I'm self-reflecting, right? I probably always had people there. It's just sometimes you gotta let them know, you know, mm -hmm. that like, yo, we need you. But I just remember that night of the, my national championship of like, who do I call? You know, it's like you always see the movie where they're like, Good luck, son. 
you know, you got this. And I feel like I didn't have that. And I called one of yeah. my frat brothers, Earl Checkley, Marine, infantry officer. And he just talked to me for like an hour, man. And that was like it. Because, you know, when you're dealing with the nerves from having to fight and all that kind of stuff. I just mm-hmm. remember, I do remember having resentment about feeling like, woe is me. You know what I'm saying? And as I look back on it now, I just realized like, hey, you know, I was a young guy. But now I try yeah. to do less woe is me. Let me say something real quick. For those out in the audience, and I know you all know Mike was a national champion boxer. He worked hard for it. I would see Mike after his fights. He was exhausted. And he had one more fight to go. And it was one of the most exciting fights to see was Mike Stedman's fights. Because no matter how tired no matter how sore, no matter how big his other opponent was or how many fights his other opponent had, Mike gave it his all every single time. And it was always, always exciting to watch Mike Stedman box. And he proved that he worked hard, you know. Um, each, each group to the world, that hard work pays off. Um, coming off of... Was it your bleep summer smoker lost to yeah. uh, Tim Green? Tim Green, bleep <laughs> <laughs> summer smoker got smoked. Thirty seconds. That's right. I will. Uh, yeah, and I'll tell you, I used to annoy Anton because I was like, I was a sophomore, and Anton was gonna be team captain, and I was like, yo, if I win a national championship, I'm gonna be your co-captain. And he was like, you're not gonna be, you can't be the co-captain, you know, as a salt, as a junior. I was like, if I win yeah. a national championship, I get to be co-captain. I used to tease him about that, man. But you were the truth, man, in the ring. Tell us, you know, we talked about your upbringing. At what point did boxing get introduced into your life? This is a good story. Boxing got introduced. I was right about seven. So after I left my first foster home, Dorothy Madaris, the abusive widow, I was very um, scared. You know, I, I don't want to explain it, but I was afraid of everything. And to kind of break me out of that shell, my next foster home, my foster dad, David Tangent, he's a, he's a Portuguese guy, put me in boxing. And it took a little while. I boxed from one seven to about 13, but I had a ton of fights, you know, all just, I was a little kid. I was 60, 75 pounds boxing all the little kids. So, but it helped me kind of break out of my shell, grow up a little, learn a sport, um, and learn a skill basically. When I got to the Naval Academy, I hadn't boxed since I was, 13 or 14. So I was now 18, 19, and I jumped right back into the ring. So I did have experience. I did have some sort of background, but not a whole lot. You know, I had taken off all four years of high school, and but I was still a little bit ahead of everybody else. I knew how to throw a jab, throw a straight right, throw a hook, uppercut. I knew how to do all that. I knew how to duck and weave. And here's where my resilience really paid off. Freshman year, my very first fight, 
was in Gettysburg. I lost that fight. And I don't know how, and neither does Coach McNally. Um, but I, I gasped. I, I, ran out of, I ran out of gas there. Um, I beat the guy up the first round. He was bloody. Nose is bleeding out, I thought. Yeah, I've got this. He's, he's, he's not going to last. Quite the opposite. I didn't last. Round two and round three, I was tired. I, I don't know why, but maybe I didn't train very hard for that fight. But I was just letting him hit me. And it didn't hurt. I was like, yeah, your nose is bleeding. Like, I know I'm going to win this fight. And that arrogance caught me off guard when the ref raised the other guy's hand. So my first fight, my first collegiate fight was a loss. That was September of 2005. Next month was our fight in Richmond, October 2005. I fought James Shute of Citadel. Knocked me out in 30 seconds. My second fight. Already 0-2 collegiate boxing. I was medically suspended for the rest of the winter season um, because of my knockout. I had a pretty bad concussion and I was not allowed to compete until the following year, January. So two months. But I used that two months with fury to train hard. And I went the next 11 or 12 fights undefeated. Uh, 10 of them were knockouts. I rematched James Shute, the guy from Citadel who knocked me out. And I beat him so bad, he quit. He quit after the first round. Um, that was in Chicago. We rematched. But um, just wanted you know, to share a little story of resilience. That my boxing career didn't start off on a good foot. It started off real bad. <laughs> yeah. Now, Anton was a secret. I won't call him a secret weapon. But when I was a freshman at the Naval Academy, coach took me to these inner city gyms, right? So, you know, you're at the Navy. It's nice. It's all safe. And you go into these gyms, man. And it's like the dog pound. You know, like people ready. You know, and they're looking at you like fresh meat, you know? Yep. And Anton was always this kind of stoic guy. But we would go to these gyms sometimes and everyone would get rocked. And at least Anton could kind of step in there and like hold his own, no matter who it was. You know, you always held your own. And you come out of the ring, you'd be like, man, that dude hits hard. <laughs> you know, he hits hard. <laughs> and we went to New York City. And we were boxing in Brooklyn, all across the Gleason's, the Bronx. The Bronx. And that trip is what led me to where I'm at now. That trip is the reason I moved to Newark. Because that experience mm -hmm. was so transformational in my life. Just going into these inner city boxing gyms, seeing all these young black and brown kids in there on hopes and dreams. I was like, I want to go learn that kind of boxing, right? I want to be a real inner city boxing coach. And I felt like by coming to the Northeast, I could do that. But Anton was that guy, man. I'm telling you. And after he left, I ended up becoming that guy. Because I'm telling y'all, <laughs> these guys are like 
when you're young and impressionable, that's the word I was looking for. You guys are like superheroes, man. You know, and then all of a sudden you fill those roles. So now I want to talk about your, your SEAL experience, right? And when you were telling that story at the beginning, I remember watching this uh, documentary on Frontline. When I was in like, it was like 2009, Obama's war, right? And it's showing Marines uh, in Afghanistan, you know, uh, fighting a good fight, right? And I remember watching that documentary. It was like, I think it was 2009 when they were doing a big push. And there was a particular scene in the back of the helo where like the camera's there, the Marines are getting flown out. And it's just like in the back of helo. Fast forward to 2012, I'm in that helo, you know? Mm -hmm. And it goes from that sense of like, you're watching it on TV and then now it's like you, you know what I'm saying? Same thing with like going to the Naval Academy. And I can only imagine, like I didn't go to Bud's, but I wanted to be a Navy SEAL for a little bit, by like a year, <laughs> till I realized I didn't like the cold water. But I watched yeah. Class 224, uh, the, the, the documentary. I watched all the movies. Yeah. I, I, I did the runs. I saw all that kind of stuff. What was it like actually being there and being like, like, you know, kind of like I said, Obama's war. Like you go from watching it and talking about it and hyping it. Now with you. I'll start with the training. First book I read about Navy SEALs was The Warrior Elite, written by Dick Couch. And it's the firsthand account documentary of what BUDS was, what was basic underwater demolition like. What I will never forget is the chapter about Hell Week. I, I didn't know about it. And I said, they go six days without sleeping. Take the bath. You get two naps, one hour naps. But basically, you're not sleeping the whole time. Because even those one hour naps, we're still awake. We're like, we can't, we can't fall asleep because if we fall asleep, we'll probably never get up. So, I said, I need to do that. That is incredible that these guys stay up that long. They hallucinate. They work together. And one out of five make it. I need to be, I need to be in that. When I finally got to Bud's, it was everything I dreamed of, honestly. And when someone asks me, was it hard? I say, no, it just sucked. I didn't like being cold, but it wasn't that hard. You know, if you want to be there, if you want to be a Navy SEAL, you'll find a way to make it. Physically, everyone shows up in shape. Well, maybe not everyone, but as you're getting ready for buds, Everyone is kind of, you know, off around the country, getting ready for the training. It's no secret. You watch the movies, you watch, you read the books, you know what it's like, so you know what you gotta do. Run, swim, and PT. That's it. You don't need like the secret book. You just gotta do those things as you're prepping. So. I did all that, um, made it all the way through. When I finally got to the SEAL teams, um, not much I could talk about, but uh, you know, I deployed to all the wars in the Middle East. 
um, Iraqi freedom, enduring freedom, um, and then um, inherent resolve, which was the second round back into Iraq. So um, it was definitely what all the books say, what all the movies say. Um, we do a lot of really cool missions. Um, basically, like we're given the key to the city when we're there. I mean, we're extremely well-trained. Um, we've got some of the best equipment, some of the best support, some of the best technology. And we buy down the risk of our leaders because we train so hard for all these missions. We know how to use all of our resources, all of our assets extremely well. Uh, we travel light and small forces. All that added up buys down the risks for our leaders, our four-star generals, you know, our um, president of the United States. Um, we're buying down his risk by sending special forces. So um, I loved it, man. It was definitely what you would imagine, you know, being a Navy SEAL was. It was awesome. What was it like with being an officer, going all the way back to even thinking about buds? Because I know it's like when I go to IOC, I went to the infantry officer course. And it was like, oh, if you're a Naval Academy guy, you'll make it, you know? And then they tell you like 99% of Naval Academy guys go to Buds will make it. They tell you all these stories. But then when you're there in the suck, you realize like this ain't guaranteed, man. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because right. I'm in the cold freezing and maybe that's the culture that keeps us going. You know, maybe that is our edge, you know, mm -hmm. to where when certain people are like, I ain't going to make it, you know, they don't got anybody. They're not carrying anybody else's legacy. But I think deep down, we're all just trying to bake, like not be that guy, you know, don't be that guy. But it don't mean it's not easy. I remember just being like, yo, man, this is really hard. Like this is like you're telling me every one of the 99 percent that make it have felt this what I'm feeling right now. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, that is correct. The Naval Academy has a higher percentage of success rate for buds. Specifically, my class, class of 2009, 100% of BUD selectees made it. They all became SEALs. I think that was the first time in history. Not, I'm not sure. Um, and even when I rolled into BUDS, right? So two years later, I was now with the class of 2011 going through BUDS. Um, there was a high percentage of success rate. Uh, there were still people who quit. I, I know a Naval Academy guy who quit. A couple. I know a Naval Academy guy who didn't make it. He got dropped for performance. Um, this one guy got dropped for um, honor violation, you know. So, above. The, the Naval Academy guys are probably the most prepared. I mean, we live, breathe, sleep, maybe, you know, we're, we're around it all the time. So 
definitely higher success rate, but that doesn't that does not guarantee you exactly what you said. When I was there, I'm like this. This still really sucks. Doesn't matter that I'm a Naval Academy guy, a Hawaiian guy, was a boxer. Trains the same. You know, you're gonna make it because you want to make it. And um, I had another thing going for me that if I quit, it would have been very embarrassing. The executive officer of Seal Delivery Vehicle Team One said that if I go to Bud's every Friday, I have to call him until I graduate. So you imagine me calling him on Friday, saying I didn't, I didn't make it, I quit. It would have been an embarrassing phone call. So I called him every Friday, John Parado was his name. And I told him, still here, sir. Um, and I called him all the way until I graduated. Still here, sir. <laughs> so that was a, a good accountability check for me, right? It was having that guy call every Friday and say, I'm still here. How, pr so. how proud are you? How proud were you when you were able to go back to all those people that invested in you and gave you a chance? Like the guy in DC, the John Prado, and to be able to stand in front of them with that trident. Oh man, I can't even put it into words, but yeah, you know, when you finally prove yourself and um, you stand in front of them, having earned that privilege and having gained more of their trust because they trusted you, you know, you built a little bit of trust. So they gave you an inch and they said, okay, we're going to give you a little bit of this. And then I completely succeeded, um, earned that privilege, earned my trident. When I finally got it, oh, I was so happy to turn around and tell everybody that I, I made it. You know, I was successful, and thank you for believing in me. Thank you for, for giving me your, you know, your recommendation, your blessing and um, holding me accountable, you know, to make it. So you go through all this work, grind, to become a SEAL, succeed as an officer, then spend a 12 year, how long, how many was it 12 years you were a SEAL? How long were you a SEAL years. for? Well, I was in the Navy for 12 years. Yeah. Um, SEAL for 10. SEAL for 10. Talk to us about what it was like away, what it was like to walk away from all of that. Because the thing is, you know, in the civilian world, nobody really cares. Maybe if you're a SEAL, they like care a little bit. And you're coming <laughs> out, you know, it's funny. I want to ask you this too. You're a SEAL around this weird time where all these books are coming out and the movies are coming out and everything's coming out. And then there's this question of like integrity with the leadership because people are saying that they're cultivating it at the top. So it's like there is a pathway to comfortability on the other side of this by leaning on the shield. Um, and so I'm sure as like an officer, Naval Academy guy, you were probably cognizant of like all that kind of goes with that. And so, you know, as you were getting ready to make that transition and leave this thing, this brand that is respected because the world doesn't know Anton Aku. The world knows the Navy SEAL, you know, and how that factored into you transitioning out. 
Well, it definitely wasn't easy to leave the teams. I loved it. I loved working with the community. Um, all the individuals are high caliber, not just the SEALs, but our support, you know, all of the staff that helped make that machine run, Naval Special Warfare, SEALs, EOD, all the support staff, everybody. Without all of their support, SEALs would just be SEALs, you know, not, nothing else. Um, but together, we're number one in the world, basically. So to leave all that behind, it was hard. I mean, um, it's a great community to be in. It definitely took a lot of sacrifice to get there. It was not easy by any means. Um, but it, you know, it's my brotherhood. Even though I'm not physically there, physically a part of it, I'm not wearing the body armor, carrying the rifle. Um, I'm still a part of the brotherhood. So that will live with me until I die. But knowing that the time to transition was coming was extremely terrifying. I was scared. I was like, what do I want to do? Um, so what do I do? I just start calling people. Called Mike Stedman. I called folks who got out, went to, did their um, masters, their MBA programs, and start businesses. And just kind of figure out what do I want to do? Where do I want to go? I don't want to plan my next chapter in my life. And seeing how Mike Stedman started businesses and. You know, a lot of my other friends started businesses. I wanted to jump into entrepreneurship. So, and that's basically where I'm at today. Got so, out in May, started two businesses. So Anton calls me. It could have been like, had to be like three years ago. I'm like, it's like a Saturday. I'm at the Ironbound Boxing Academy. I get a phone call. I was like, oh, what's up, bro? You know, I hadn't talked in a while. We're catching up. And he's like, hey, yo, Mike, I'm thinking about starting this cold brew brand. He's like, I don't know where to begin with it. Blah, blah, blah. I was like, dude, aren't you Hawaiian? I was like, brand the hell out of that brand. Make it a Hawaiian cold brew. I was like, you can do it, dude. I was like, there's contract brewers out. I mean, they're contract roasteries. Like I was just telling them all the kind of stuff I knew from uh, working with dope coffee. <clears throat> so boom. So a couple of years, you know, transition into uh, what happened, you know, pandemic happens. We haven't caught up, whatever. Next thing I know, you know, uh, I'm in this thread with him and uh, Talaya Beer Company. So I know, like, he's making moves. And then next thing I know, he's applying for veterans and residents with Bunker Labs. And lo and behold, in my fridge right now, I got some Voyager cold brew. And I see my man on Instagram and everything. And I'm like, yo, I was like, I remind him. I'm like, yo, I remember when you called me about that. And it's so That's dope right. to see you bring it into fruition. And there's a couple of things I want to ask you about it. Number one is... You know, I get a little racy on my podcast, Confessions of a Native Son. And I, I, I poked the fire a little bit on social media, on LinkedIn, not in like a tacky way, but just more in a sense of like, there's all this smoke and mirrors about uh, investing in black owned businesses and black access to capital and venture capital, whatever. And I wrote a post on LinkedIn 
And Antone came on the post and was like, Mike, I just don't get it. You're like, you're like, I bootstrapped two businesses myself, cold brew, and I'm doing real <laughs> estate. You're like, what are y'all talking about with this lack of access to capital? You know? And I will tell you though, right? Like, I don't ask any man for anything anymore. Like, I don't believe no man has to give me anything. If they do, it's nice, you know? But I always kind of feel like, and maybe that's a weakness of mine, I don't know, but of like, I want to control the outcome, you know? So like, even though I always don't agree with people, right? I can also understand where you're coming from. So I'm curious to know like where you were coming from with that, because, you know, there's a lot going on in the world, particularly around race and culture and this group yeah. not having this and this group not having that, but you have like a different stance and the way you worded it, it wasn't in like an alienating way of like, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, you know? Um, <laughs> I know who that is. It's not like you're not acknowledging the challenges people face, but you just kind of have a different language and a different approach. Just going back to, you know, what I said earlier about don't let your past dictate your future. So I do remember, I do remember that post. I do remember uh, my comment. And I guess what I was trying to understand was why aren't you given the same opportunities as everybody else? You know, we should be, you should be, I should be anybody, you know, we should be given the same opportunities. So, and maybe it's maybe a little bit of my ignorance of not knowing exactly the situation you were going through at the time. But um, I like to think that everything is fair. Everything is um, even or uh, unbiased, but I'd be naive to think that all the time. So there's definitely um, ways to get ahead, whether it's knowing who you know, whether it's you know going to the guys who sit on the board and saying, here, here it is, here's my package, take it, and thank you very much. But, um, there should be, um, in my sense, opportunity for everybody. Now, going back to what you said, I, I completely bootstrapped my cold brew coffee company. I didn't, and I know people, I know friends who want to invest in my company and I tell them, no, not yet. It's not, it's not ready for investments um, because they want to give me money. Well, what am I going to do with it? You know, I know the business can pay for itself right now. Um, I need to come up with the plan to scale before I take any of the money. Um, so, yeah, my boots, my, um, sorry, my coffee company and my real estate company were completely bootstrapped. You know, I didn't take out a loan or ask anybody for money and real estate's killing it you know i'm doing extremely well in my real estate company yeah the comment was in reference to accredited investing and how to be an accreditor mm -hmm. investor in this country to even invest in uh you know be an angel investor and invest in some of these big deals you got to have two hundred thousand dollars a year in household income reported for at least two years or a million dollars in liquid assets and I was referencing the fact that like, that's like the 1% of black America. Cause the day I graduated the Naval Academy, I was like top 75% of earners. 
as an African-American. Um, and your comment, but the thing is, here's what I'll tell you. Your comment's not off. You know, I do, I do believe that now. I'm like, listen, at the end of the day, like we can't give people too much power over us. You know, we got to do what you can with what you have. And while it might be nice to have what other people have at times, you know, never give up the power that like you control the outcome. And just this idea of like, hey, yeah, you got a VC back company. I got a bootstrap back company. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you got a hundred thousand people that love you. I might have a hundred people that love me, you know, but this ain't no, it's like an apple and oranges comparison. We're living different lives. And so like, yeah, I get racy on this podcast, but I also acknowledge the fact of like, yo man, like there's a lot of opportunity out here regardless. And we can't be so blind to the fact of what we don't have that we miss what opportunities we do have to make the most of it. As you start to build your coffee brand, right? This cold brew brand, which I'm going to be the brand strategist for. I'm plugging myself. Not yet. He's going to, I'm hopefully he he hires me out. But as you start to build it, right? Like you haven't gone out there the Navy SEAL route, you know? And I've seen a lot of people do that with their brands, you know, to the point of literally putting the trident on the brand. Why is that for you? Well, take a look at my logo, for instance, Voyager Cold Brew Coffee. The logo is of King Kamehameha, the Hawaiian king. The Hawaiian king that united all the islands. It's an important figure to the native Hawaiian culture. Important figure to me, because that is my, my ancestral history. So... I don't even know where the Navy SEAL brand would fit in there. You know, not that I want it in there, but the brand is Voyager. Who is the Voyager? The Native Hawaiians. Now you can peel back that onion and look at me as, you know, also Native Hawaiian. I left my native home of Hawaii, went to the Naval Academy, graduated, you know, joined, went into the Navy, did all my deployments, became a Navy SEAL, did all my deployments. Um, that's a voyage. You can, ca- you can categorize that as a voyager, someone like me who did all that in, in the Navy career, but that's not the brand I wanted. That's not the face I wanted. I wanted the face of um, my ancestors, the natives, and have it translatable to people who, you know, travel the world or, um, you know, build businesses or whatever your voyage is going to be. It's cool being on the other side of this thing with you. You know, it's like we're both (laughs) teammates. Now we're like both entrepreneurs in our hustle. And by all accounts, we're successful. We're successful given, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah. And going back to, you know, the comment, and this is something I, I asked myself too, because a lot of my views on the world and outcomes have changed of, do you think our success at times, because we are by all accounts privileged now, <laughs> you know what I mean? We, <laughs> for, we fought tooth and nail, but we're privileged. We got bougie people problems. You know, what time do we get up? Did I plan my day right? Right. We're not necessarily... 
am I feeding myself? Do I have food in the fridge, right? Like we don't have those problems. And one of the things I always have to go back and forth for myself is as my views start to change on life and the world, and I start to express them on platforms like this, or I write about it, right? Am mm -hmm. I doing it from a privileged point of view and not being disconnected from like so many other people out in the, in the country, you know? And is it okay to even do that, right? Because you can't speak for everyone. I can only speak to my existence. But even hearing your whole story, right? You know, I'm very pro-American. I guess that's the word you want to say. You know, I used mm -hmm. to do the mission trips and go to Africa and help people in Africa and stuff. We got a lot of people right here we need to help. You know, and then yeah. you talk about like your kids, the kids that you go back to talk to, the environments of the kids in those homes you grew up in. We still got yeah. a lot of those kids around. And so like our lens yeah. and how we view the world is so different from how they find themselves at like right now. But is that like, mm -hmm. it's understandable because of education and life experience. But when we start to speak about the world and how it really is versus how their reality is, does that have a chance to be disingenuine? You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. But, you know, it, like I said before, your past is not going to dictate your future. Surround yourself with good people, with people you want to be. You are the sum of the people you surround yourself. So if you're hanging out with a bad crowd, think about it. Chances are you're going to turn up like them. So I was always surrounding myself with good people, you know, whether they're native Hawaiians or not. I, I don't care what you look like, as long as you're a good person. You know, Mike Stedman, he wanted to be my team cap, my co-captain. As good as a boxer he was, I'm like, Mike, you're a junior. But <laughs> 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 you're a good person. We got people tuning in from all over the country, all over the world, some veterans, civilians, whatever. What do you want them to know about Anton Aku? Good question. You know, I haven't really figured that out yet. I mean, I got out of the Navy in May. It's August, so it's barely three months. But, you know, I want them to know that um, you can overcome any challenge any obstacle, you can be resilient on any hardship, any disadvantage. My life story is a great example of how I turned a terrible upbringing, a terrible childhood into a success story, you know, and, and I don't like to brag about it. I don't like to talk about it mostly. I'm not embarrassed by it by any means. I'll sit in front of a stage and tell everybody my story, but you know, I, I don't um, I don't like to openly talk. Someone asks me questions, I'll tell them exactly what happened. You know. So I just want people to know that don't let your past dictate your future. Like I, you know, like I've said a few times, it's it's true. You know, Mike, look at you, you're a great example. You know, single single parent home, uh, Naval Academy, national champion boxer, US Marine, infantry, 
um, veteran, now full-time entrepreneur. So looking back at your five-year-old self, would you see yourself here today? That's a question you should ask. Everyone should ask themselves. Looking back at your five-year-old self, you know, we all had a different five-year-old, um, you know, background. I was in Hawaii, surfing it up. We got to go back, man. We got to go back to rum fire. <laughs> I hope it's still there. Yeah. A lot of businesses shut down. So, Anton, how can we support you in this next journey, this next phase of your life? You know, the best way to support small businesses, entrepreneurs, guys who are bootstrapping is to comment, like, follow, share, right? So comment on their posts. You like it. Share with friends. And then you subscribe. So I do it with all my other friends who've got businesses. Um, strength in numbers. You know, buy your friend's product. Talk about it. Comment on it. Like all their pictures. Share all their posts. Share their business pages. Talk about it. Just today. I got two phone calls from buddies who talked about my Voyager cold brew coffee business to other people. So I've got um, a meeting set up on Thursday with another guy who has a similar coffee business to mine, and we're going to just brainstorm. Got another meeting set up probably Wednesday, Navy SEAL Foundation wants to brainstorm with me on how we can get you know all of our transitioning seals um, into a program where we're collaborating more and we used to just go to the bars but you know alcohol just wasn't the scene we wanted to start putting our transitioning seals in so they approached me about doing coffee I love coffee, um, obviously, and I was like, "Yes." I had that conversation today with uh, another another guy in the teams. So, yeah, the more you talk about it, the more you share with your friends, um, you'll grow. You know, and patience is key. My brother, I appreciate you sitting down, taking this time with me, getting to catch up, and uh, being vulnerable and letting people know your story and your background. Where can people follow you? Voyager is on Instagram, Facebook. We have a website, voyagercoldbrewcoffee.com. Um, if you click on that, you can message me. And if you want to make an order, you can order from our online uh, webpage. Check out our posts on Instagram. My fiance manages all the social media accounts. So, Please give her credit for how nice everything is. I posted one thing once and I got cut off. She said, no more. You're never going to post anything. Uh, maybe have bad, <laughs> bad, bad taste. But um, no, she uh, she does a really great job. Um, yeah, support us. We'll su we always support other small businesses, other entrepreneurs, or anybody, really. 
So, yeah. Y'all heard it from the man. Go like his page, share, and listen. I don't believe in scarcity. Y'all know this podcast is brought to you by the Dope Coffee Company out of Atlanta, Georgia, right? We, the veterans, or maybe just my personality in general, we don't believe in scarcity, man. We're about uplifting each other. And there's more than enough of us out here to all win. And so uh, mm-hmm. go show Anton and Voyager Coffee some love by liking their Instagram, purchase some of that coffee. If you find yourself in Virginia Beach, uh, make sure you're dropping in. I'm sure he's going to get it going to some of the stores and everything. But uh, that's right. It's a pleasure having you, man. And for all my listeners out there, I got exciting news. I created a sub stack and I'm not promoting it very much visibly, just a little bit. But a sub stack is a, a newsletter that's going to be dropping once a week. And so you'll get a podcast once a week and a newsletter once a week from me um, by subscribing to the sub stack at the link in my bio. So it's on my Facebook. I mean, on my Instagram, I'm also going to include it in the show notes. And uh, this allows you to comment on these podcasts. Um, I'm really excited about that. And it's also going to push me as a, I don't like to use the word thought leader, but I like writing. I like working on my thoughts and writing allows me to do that. And so I'm stepping up my game with this uh, stub stack. So please subscribe. And I promise not to bombard you with a lot of nonsense, just short little thoughts, at least once a week, maybe some book recommendations, et cetera. We're going to build a community. And the nice thing about um, this this platform is, you know, I really want to engage with you all out there. A lot of the content that I'm creating would love to know what your thoughts and stuff are. And so this platform allows me to do that. But again, you guys got to be the ones to market the show. I'm relying solely on organic marketing for uh, Confessions of a Native Son. This is my baby. This is legacy work. And so I'd really appreciate <laughs> if you uh, shared it with someone in your network who you uh, will feel like could benefit from the information and uh, check out my website, confessionsofanativeson.com. I'll drop in a few blog posts here and there. But other than that, uh, I appreciate y'all for tuning in. And until next time, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week. I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't have feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase our dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man.